Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program and we're in chapter three of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. This chapter is titled Enlightenment, What is Enlightenment? Very early in this book, chapter three, I wrote this chapter in order to help students understand clearly what is enlightenment because if you're going to embark on this journey in order to move the mind to enlightenment through this deep training over multiple months and multiple years you would need to understand what enlightenment is and what it isn't in order to more readily walk towards the actual goal so today i'm going to be sharing with you what enlightenment is so that you'll understand this goal more clearly It's essentially the same thing as if you were going to be traveling to a new city and you've never been to that city before. You would first like to know a little bit about that city before you even make a decision of whether or not you're going to travel to that city. You would like to know about the roads, about different activities that are there, maybe some of the parks, some of the venues, things that you could be doing once you arrive there. And then that way, once you arrive to that new city, you will actually know that you're there and you'll be able to more readily make your way to that city. So understanding what is enlightenment is the same thing. In order to get to this mental state of enlightenment, you would need to clearly understand what enlightenment is and what it isn't so that you can make your way to the ultimate goal of the path to enlightenment. And then once you arrive to that goal, you'll know that you're at that goal. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class today. I plan to share what is enlightenment with you. And it's from this book, as I mentioned, which you can download and read chapter three. You can take that file and go print it, or you can order the book online through Amazon if you'd like. In that way, in addition to what I share with you today, you have something that you can read, which goes into a lot more detail than what I'm gonna be able to do in our class today. We're gonna get into a lot of detail about what enlightenment is, but the book just has a lot more detail than what I'll actually be able to cover in just one class session. So let's go ahead and look at what I prepared to discuss with you guys in order to help you understand what is enlightenment. The first thing to understand is that it's extremely challenging for you to understand and fully understand what is enlightenment. The way that you really truly deeply understand what enlightenment is, is by actually experiencing it. And at this point, if your mind's currently unenlightened, then it's going to be somewhat of a challenge for you to fully deeply understand what enlightenment is. But our discussion today will help you start opening up this dialogue and start opening up this understanding so that you will start understanding what enlightenment is. And the more that you learn about what enlightenment is, 
again, it'll help you get a clearer picture of what it is so that you can more readily walk your way towards the ultimate goal. So today in our class, while I'm going to be sharing different things with you about what enlightenment is and helping you to start understanding this through our discussion and our dialogue today, it's important for you to understand that you're not going to walk away today with 100% clarity on what enlightenment is and what it isn't, because in order to really truly understand it 100%, you need to actually experience it. So it's important that as we go in our discussion today, that you feel free to ask questions and seek details to understand more about what the ultimate goal is and how to actually attain enlightenment. Most of what we're going to be talking about today is what enlightenment is. And then next week on Sunday, starting with chapter four, the whole rest of this program and the whole rest of this book in this entire book series is helping you to understand how to actually attain enlightenment. So it's important to spend some time today to help you start to understand what the ultimate goal of enlightenment is so that now with that more clear picture than what you walked into the class with, that you'll start to understand it and now you can more readily walk your way to enlightenment as I share the rest of the teachings starting with chapter four continuing forward. So let's talk about what is enlightenment. Enlightenment is a mental state that is attainable during this life in a human existence or a heavenly existence. So humans and heavenly beings can both attain enlightenment. The lower realms of hell, animal realm, and afflicted spirits, it's such that they aren't able to actually attain enlightenment in those existences. But those beings are being constantly reborn and they will eventually make their way to the human realm and or heavenly realm. And they may have actually been there already based on their previous existences. And they will have the opportunity to attain enlightenment in future existences. But you would need to be in the human realm or the heavenly realm in order to experience enlightenment and cultivate the mind to the point where it can experience enlightenment. Enlightenment itself is a mind that is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. So as you gradually train the mind to get to enlightenment, from there on, you will never experience any discontentedness whatsoever. All discontentedness will be eliminated for the rest of your life. So this mental state of enlightenment where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, once you train to that point, the mind will never actually regress out of the enlightened mental state. The mind will be concentrated, it'll be steady, it'll be unshakable. And having attained this mental state of enlightenment, a being will no longer be reborn in the cycle of rebirth. The mind will be calm and relaxed, yet attentive and alert. This state of mind that we describe as enlightenment or the Buddha described as Nibbana, you can attain it during your life and experience the benefits of that for the rest of your life, but you can also attain enlightenment at death as well. It's highly unadvisable to kind of bank on attaining enlightenment at death because you won't necessarily know whether you're going to attain enlightenment at death or not. And someone who attains enlightenment at death, they will have experienced their entire life with discontentedness, such as anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, all these discontent feelings and others are still going to be experienced through that person's entire life. 
But then at death, if they attain enlightenment, that's kind of the second best option in terms of that being isn't going to be reborn into a new existence. But the ideal goal would be for you to gradually learn the teachings, gradually practice those, and then gradually experience the progress where you see discontentedness gradually diminish over the course of your life to the point where you eventually get to the point where you no longer experience any discontentedness at all. And then you get to experience that mental state and enjoy that mental state for the rest of your life. So the mind's going to no longer be shaken up. It's very steady, it's very stable, it's unshakable. There's this calm, this relaxed aspect of the mind, but yet it's attentive and alert. There's enthusiasm, there's a willingness to do something. If there's complacency and the mind is dull and lethargic, then the mind is not enlightened. If there's this yearning and longing, this go, 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 all the time, then the mind's not enlightened either. It's only when the mind comes perfectly to the middle that the mind is now performing optimally and you'll be able to experience this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. The Buddha explained it with an instrument. He talked about this instrument that if the string was too tight and you pluck the string, it didn't play beautiful music the way the instrument was intended to play. But if the string was too loose and you pluck that, the instrument didn't play the way it was intended to play either. It's only when this instrument is tuned with the string perfectly in the middle that now when you pluck the string, the instrument plays beautiful music the way it was intended to play. And our mind is exactly the same way. If it's too loose, meaning lethargic or complacent, then the mind's not performing well. It feels dull. It feels lackluster. It feels lethargic. But also if the mind is wound up too tight with anxiety and stress and go, 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 go all the time, the mind's not performing optimally. It's only when you train the mind to be right in the middle that it can now perform optimally and you'll experience these types of benefits where the mind will be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy and others that we're going to be talking about today. In order to get to this mental state of enlightenment, a individual would need to train through understanding craving, anger, and ignorance, or the unknowing of true reality, and they would actually need to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance from the mind. This is the pollution that plagues the unenlightened mind and keeps it trapped in the unenlightened state. But when you eliminate the craving, anger, and ignorance, when you get rid of these taints or this pollution or these defilements, and now the mind is practicing generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, now you'll experience this brightness and this radiance of the enlightened mind. As part of that, an individual will do what we call realizing non-self and dissolving the ego. These are two aspects of your practice that you will need to develop as part of the path, which is part of the 10 fetters, which is something we're going to be discussing today. So this craving, anger, and ignorance, these are called the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots or the three fires. We're going to be discussing these as part of chapter eight in this group learning program and in this book, where I'll go into a lot of detail explaining what craving, anger, and ignorance is and helping you to learn how to eradicate those. But essentially, all the Buddhist teachings are helping you to eliminate these pollutions of mind, including the 10 fetters, which the 10 fetters are a deeper understanding of craving anger and ignorance or this unknowing of true reality. 
The path to enlightenment is a purification of the mind. So enlightenment itself is a mental state where the mind has been purified. But the path to enlightenment is a purification of the mind through training the mind to eliminate the conditions that are keeping it stuck in the unenlightened state. And those conditions that are keeping it stuck in the unenlightened state are craving, anger, and ignorance. But more specifically, it's the 10 fetters that are keeping the mind trapped in this unenlightened state where it continues to experience these conditioned pleasant feelings where the mind experiences this temporary happiness, excitement, thrill, euphoria. And then it crashes and experiences this sadness and anger and frustration and irritation and annoyance, guilt, shame, fear. And the mind's just oscillating up and down and up and down throughout our life with periods of time where you might feel somewhat peaceful or content. But nonetheless, it's only a matter of time before the mind starts going up and down and up and down. So when you purify the mind of these conditions of craving anger and ignorance that are plaguing the unenlightened mind, then by removing that pollution, now the mind is purified and you'll experience this brightness and this radiance of the enlightened mind. Enlightenment itself is not happiness or ultimate bliss. You'll sometimes hear people explain enlightenment this way. They'll say that it's ultimate happiness or supreme happiness or ultimate bliss. I never explain it this way and the Buddha didn't explain it this way either. What I feel that people are probably experiencing when they're explaining it this way is they're explaining what is experienced when you experience the jhanas. If you remember back a few classes, I talked about something called a jhana, which is a preliminary phase that the mind goes through before it gets to the first stage of enlightenment. There's these four jhanas. These are preliminary phases that the mind experiences various qualities as it progresses through these four jhanas. And when you get into that first jhana, there's this bliss, there's this extreme happiness. And for somebody that's experiencing that, and they don't understand what the jhanas are, and they don't understand what the four stages of enlightenment are, they might actually feel that they're enlightened at that point. Because the difference between being off the path and experiencing those jhanas, it's like night and day. The amount of bliss and supreme happiness that you experience in that first jhana is something that you've never experienced before. And oftentimes a practitioner can think that they're actually enlightened. But in that first, second, third, and fourth jhana, the mind is still experiencing discontentedness. It's still experiencing conditioned pleasant feelings, conditioned painful feelings, and conditioned feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. They're diminished, but they're still experiencing it. So I wouldn't describe enlightenment as supreme happiness or ultimate bliss or even happiness by itself because you've experienced happiness before. You know what happiness feels like, but yet you know the mind is unenlightened. So if happiness is enlightenment and you know that you've experienced happiness before, but you're not enlightened, then happiness can't be enlightenment because you know what happiness feels like. It's a temporary feeling that arises, it changes, and then it fades away. But the qualities of mind that you experience when the mind is enlightened, they don't arise, they don't change, and they don't fade away. The peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, it's permanent. 
When you wake up as an enlightened being, the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. All day long, the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And when you go to sleep, the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. There's nothing that shakes that up. These mental states don't arise, they don't change, and they don't fade away. These mental states of peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, they're not based on any impermanent condition. They don't arise, they don't change, and they don't fade away. They persist in the mind permanently for the rest of your life. So this happiness that people talk about with enlightenment, that arises, it changes, and it fades away. That's how you know that happiness or ultimate bliss is not enlightenment. And if you look at the Buddha's words when he describes the jhanas as part of the Eightfold Path, you can see where he explains that that first jhana has this happiness or this gladness that comes into the mind. And the challenge is, is that if somebody moves into those first jhanas, they experience the happiness and the bliss and they think they're enlightened then their mind can actually stall. They can actually choose to no longer progress in their practice. And once you're in those jhanas, the mind can actually regress out of those. So you can move into the jhanas, and if your practice stalls and you're not continuing to learn and practice, your mind can regress out of those jhanas, where once you get into the first stage of enlightenment, your mind won't regress from there. So when you are progressing on this path to enlightenment and you experience this happiness or this bliss, don't think that the mind is actually enlightened. You're actually experiencing the jhanas most likely. And what you would like to do is maintain your practice, keep focusing on developing your practice and move the mind into those stages of enlightenment where now the mind won't regress out of those. Let's talk about some of the advantages of attaining enlightenment. Once the mind moves to this enlightened mental state, as I mentioned, the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. The mind won't regress. It will never revert backwards after you experience and you've done the work to attain enlightenment. It's impossible for the mind to regress and revert out of the enlightened mental state. In addition to these mental states of peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, a being who is enlightened will experience a high degree of focus, concentration, deep memory, and clarity of mind. And the reason why is because in the unenlightened state, the mind is polluted. It's got this craving, anger, and ignorance or unknowing of true reality that's plaguing the mind. And the Buddha calls this a muddled mind because there's this pollution in the mind. But when you clear that out through the purification of the mind, and now the mind has removed the pollution or the taints or the defilements, now when this brightness and this brilliance of the enlightened mind shines through, some of the qualities that you'll experience is this ability to focus for long-term periods of time. Having concentration where you're able to focus on a single object for extended periods of time where you'll have this deep memory to remember things for extended periods of time. And you'll have this clarity of mind or this clarity of thought so that now you can draw out this wisdom 
and now start making wiser and wiser decisions in the world. And these qualities that you're experiencing, this focus, concentration, memory, and clarity of mind, it's helping you in your daily life. So whether it's your personal life or your professional life, you're gonna be able to use these qualities of mind in order to perform better because the mind is now performing optimally. Because it doesn't have this pollution that's plaguing the mind, the mind is now purified. So you'll see these qualities of mind coming through that you'll be able to use in all parts of your life. Another advantage of attaining enlightenment is the mind will no longer experience these discontent feelings. If you can think about all the time over your life where you've experienced sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fears, boredom, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, resentment, stress, anxiety, and others, think about the amount of time, think about the amount of effort and energy that went into feeling these discontent feelings and just being bogged down in your life being hindered from making wise decisions and just moving forward in life and enjoying the wonderful aspects of life. So when you eliminate the pollution that's causing these discontent feelings, then you're no longer sitting around feeling bored and lonely. You're no longer feeling sad or angry or frustrated. You no longer have this guilt or shame or fears that are bothering you. You no longer have this shyness where you're shy to do certain things in the world. You no longer feel jealous or resentful. You don't have this stress that's plaguing you or this anxiety. So when you clear out this pollution and you clear out these discontent feelings, now you really can truly live this amazing life where you're not bogged down and burdened by these discontent feelings. You can really experience the wonderful joys of life because you're no longer experiencing these discontent feelings. A being who is enlightened will have deep wisdom with politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect towards all beings. They're not causing any harm in the world. This deep wisdom that an enlightened being has, it's wisdom about how to attain enlightenment because they've already attained it, so they know how to attain it. So the enlightened being will have this deep wisdom of how to attain it, but they aren't necessarily gonna have this deep wisdom about everything in the world. So a person can attain enlightenment but yet they don't know how to fly an airplane. Or there could be an airplane pilot who has attained enlightenment, they know how to fly a plane, but they don't know how to do something else, something else in the world that they maybe have not trained on. So an enlightened being doesn't know everything. They know what they've been exposed to and enlightened being will deeply have wisdom about the path to enlightenment and any other aspects of life that they've been involved in. So if they're a business person or if they're a politician or they're a hairstylist or they design clothing or they're a model or whatever they're involved in, that's separate learning from the path to enlightenment that they will have wisdom on those things. But a person who's enlightened, who's a fashion model, for example, they're not gonna necessarily know how to fly an airplane unless they've done actual training in that and gained the wisdom on that. So this deep wisdom that we talk about in the enlightened being's mind is wisdom about the path to enlightenment and the wisdom about how to essentially live a very wholesome life. 
because the Buddha's teachings are sharing with you the natural laws of existence. And in order to get to enlightenment, an enlightened being will have to deeply understand the natural laws of existence, which the Buddha is explaining to you through his teachings. So an enlightened being will have deep wisdom about those, but not necessarily about everything else in the world. They would need to train how to be an airplane pilot, or they would need to train how to drive a boat, or they would need to train how to drive a car. They would need to train on these things separately. But this path to enlightenment, an enlightened being will deeply understand that. And you will see that they're polite, kind, friendly, and respectful towards all beings. And this is one of the reasons why an enlightened being's life is so seamless and so effortless and they live at ease because they're being so polite, kind, friendly, and respectful that they don't experience these difficulties and these struggles in life. They have this wisdom to make wise decisions. Because when we experience these struggles and difficulties in life, it's because we lack wisdom. We lack wisdom of how to make wise decisions that will allow us to move forward in life and to make decisions that produce wholesome outcomes. But an enlightened being, one of the things that they're very wise about is how they treat other people. And they're not causing harm to others through their intentions, their speech, their actions, or their livelihood. They're deeply practicing the Eightfold Path so that polite, kind, friendly, and respectful nature and how they treat others, that's what comes back to them in terms of their relationships. An enlightened being might still meet challenges, but they have the wisdom to be able to face those challenges. It's not like impermanent stops for an enlightened being. It's not like the world stops for an enlightened being. It's not like the crowd you know, separates when they see an enlightened being coming because there's no physical characteristics on the physical body that's going to identify who is enlightened and who's not. It's all about training the mind. There are certain mental qualities that an enlightened being is practicing. So somebody could be enlightened and be standing right next to you and you would never even know it unless you understand how to determine if somebody is or isn't enlightened. So a being who is impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful, this is very clear that this person isn't enlightened because they're being impolite to others. They're being unkind. They're being unfriendly and disrespectful. So in order to, for you to experience enlightenment, you need to bring your practice up to where you are polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to all beings around you. And when you train the mind to eliminate this pollution of craving anger and ignorance, it'll get easier and easier for you to do that. Right now, it might be a real struggle for you to do that because the mind is plagued with this craving, anger, and ignorance. But as you gain more and more wisdom about this path to enlightenment, that will become easier. And that's where you'll see that your personal and professional relationships can really blossom. You can live at ease because every situation that you're in, you're able to treat people with politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respect no matter what. So your relationships really blossom. You're able to communicate with ease. You're able to make decisions with ease. Enlightened beings aren't struggling and having difficulties in the world. Their life is not a wreck. Their life is quite peaceful because they make decisions such that what they put out into the world is not harming others, so therefore harm isn't coming back to them. The way that you would attain enlightenment is through learning and practicing the core teachings of the Buddha. 
and these core teachings are all teachings that you're going to learn as part of this group learning program. This group learning program in this first book helps you to learn these teachings and others. You're going to be learning the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, the Brahma Viharas, the ten fetters, the seven factors of enlightenment, and there's extensive meditation training that's needed. There's these teachings and others that are needed in order to progress to enlightenment. But this is what I suggest that a beginning practitioner starts out with. And this is why starting next week on Sunday, we're going to start with the three universal truths and the four noble truths. The following Sunday, we're going to be talking about the eightfold path. Then we're going to eventually get to the five precepts and the Brahma Viharas and all these other teachings that you're going to need to build up your core understanding of these teachings and build up a foundation for yourself so that you can start making your way towards enlightenment. But as you learn these teachings, you're not believing these teachings. There is no belief on the path to enlightenment. Regardless of what you hear or what other people might be practicing in terms of Buddhist teachings, the Buddha never said, just believe me. You can't believe, 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 believe and actually get to enlightenment. Because as I mentioned, one of the major things that is keeping the mind in the unenlightened state is ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. What antidotes ignorance is wisdom. The only way to get to wisdom is for you to learn the teachings, for you to reflect on those. And while you're reflecting on those teachings, you're independently verifying whether the teachings are true or not. And then you're practicing the teachings in order to train the mind. And as you practice the teachings, you are training the mind and observing that this discontentedness is gradually diminishing in the mind. And as you're receiving guidance from teachers along this path to enlightenment, and you're not believing the teachings, but instead you're independently verifying the truth in order to acquire wisdom, this is where you observe that the condition of the mind is gradually improving. When you have belief, you don't know whether it's true or whether it's false. Therefore, the mind can be shaken up. The mind can be unsteady and uncalm and be shaken up very easily. But when you independently verify the truth for yourself, then you know the truth and nobody can shake you off of that. And your mind can become very steady and very stable because now you know the truth. And as you train in these teachings, the Buddhist teachings are meant for you to learn, for you to reflect on them, start thinking on them, looking internal, trying to determine based on your past experiences, are these teachings actually true based on what I've seen and what I've observed about my life and the life of people around me? And then as you practice his teachings in order to improve your wisdom, your moral conduct, and your mental discipline, now as you improve those things in your life, you will see that the condition of the mind is gradually improving. But this doesn't happen through belief. You have to learn, reflect, and practice the teachings, which I'm going to help you with as we progress in this program. I will teach you something in these classes. I will start helping you to reflect on that. And then I will share with you how to put that into practice so that you can start experiencing the results of removing the pollution from the mind and experiencing this more purity in the mind where the mind now functions more optimally and you can experience these benefits that are associated with experiencing a more pure mind and enlightenment. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have about anything that I've shared so far. 
you can ask questions by putting those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Our moderators will see that and be sure your questions get asked during the class. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Hello, Teacher David, and thank you. You described um, the enlightened mind as peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. I understand peaceful, calm, and content, but, but how exactly would you describe serene and joy, and when does that come in? Yeah, the serenity that I'm talking about there is that clarity of mind, that calmness, that composure, where the mind is no longer plagued by this bombardment of thoughts. When you're in the unenlightened state and the mind is untrained and uncontrolled, you have this bombardment of thoughts that really plague the mind. Sometimes at the worst possible moment, you have this bombardment of thoughts, particularly for some people when they're trying to fall asleep, they might get bombarded by thoughts or you're trying to focus at a business meeting and you get this bombardment of thoughts. So the enlightened mind is going to experience this serenity where you don't have that. There's this stillness and this quietness in the mind. And there's a thought that comes to the mind. And when that one thought comes to the mind, you handle it, you address it, you do whatever you need to do. And then the mind is quite calm, quite peaceful. And then maybe a few hours later, a few days later, you have another thought. There's certain thoughts that come to the mind, but there's not this bombardment of thoughts. This happens in these qualities, all of them the peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, they gradually start to move into the mind as you're experiencing more and more of the four jhanas and the four stages of enlightenment. When you first get into the jhanas, you start noticing some of these qualities starting to come into the mind, but they become more profound as you get closer and closer to the fourth stage of enlightenment. And it's like they open up. So you might experience initially, you might experience a few minutes or a few hours of some of these qualities of mind. But then as you get closer and closer to enlightenment, you experience these longer and longer durations of the peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy, where it can be multiple hours, multiple days, multiple weeks, multiple months where you experience this peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy. This joy that I'm talking about I describe it as joy rather than happiness because as I mentioned to you earlier, happiness is that temporary feeling that arises, it changes, and it fades away. Happiness is a feeling where joy is a mental state where once you're experiencing this joy in the mind, the mind is just always joyful. It doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. It's just always there, it's always present. It's very easy to access a smile for an enlightened being because there's nothing plaguing the mind, there's nothing burdening the mind, there's nothing polluting the mind. So there's always this joy that's there in the mind. It's not a conditioned joy. In other words, if it's sunny outside, you might feel happy. And then if it's raining outside, you might feel sad. This is conditioned feelings. The condition is, is that when it's sunny, I'll feel happy. And when it's raining, I'm going to feel sad. This is essentially like a temper tantrum that a two-year-old or a three-year-old might throw, is that your mind saying, you know what, if you give me what I want, I'll feel happy. But if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to throw a temper tantrum and I'm going to be sad and I'm going to be angry. And this is conditioned feelings that when it's sunny outside, the mind's happy. When it's raining, the mind might be sad. But an enlightened being, someone who's experiencing this unconditioned joy 
Or if we'd like to call it unconditioned happiness, we can call it unconditioned happiness. This enlightened being that's experiencing this joy, when it's sunny outside, there's joy in the mind. When it's raining outside, there's joy in the mind. Because an enlightened being understands the universal truth of impermanence and that it can't be permanently sunny outside. And an enlightened being isn't going to crave or cling to activities to go outside. And if they have a certain plan that they were going to go outside and enjoy the outdoors when it's sunny, then when it's now raining and they can't do that anymore, they'll just let go of those decisions and be like, all right, well, I can't go outside and ride my bike. It's raining. I'm going to maybe work out at the gym or I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to go watch a movie or something like this. An enlightened being isn't going to cling and crave and yearn for permanence, holding on to certain things. So therefore, because the mind isn't having these conditioned feelings of if it's sunny outside, I'm happy. If it's raining outside, I'm sad. Because there's not this clinging and craving, this yearning for permanence, the enlightened mind can just be satisfied with what is. It can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in any and all situations. Is joy also a zest for life? Yes, I describe that an enlightened being will have this zest for life, right? This enthusiasm, this willingness to do something that, you know, oftentimes when the mind is plagued with this pollution that I talk about, this craving, anger, and ignorance, there's a real disgruntled nature about life. And life can feel like such a struggle and so difficult. It can almost feel like you're dragging your feet through the mud when the mind is burdened with craving, anger, and ignorance. Life can be such a drag or such a bear. But when the mind has eliminated this pollution and there's this radiance and this brightness shining through and life is no longer a struggle and it's no longer difficult, now there's this zest for life that springs up. This might be described in the seven factors of enlightenment as the enlightenment factor of energy and the enlightenment factor of joy that the Buddha talks about where the mind has this willingness and this enthusiasm to do something. And there's this joy that's not based on any particular condition. It's just always there. So an enlightened being can have this zest for life where they wake up with this zest all day long. They have this zest. Even when they go to sleep, they have this zest for life. It's not this craving and yearning and this go, 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 not that type of thing, but this understanding that life is enjoyable. Life is wonderful. Life can be absolutely joyful. But when there's this craving, anger and ignorance in the mind, that's where life feels like such a burden. And like you have this weight on your shoulders and you're dragging your feet through the mud. You teach David, that is clear. Now, how would a practitioner know that they have exited the jhanas that you spoke of and that they've entered the first stage of enlightenment? There's the 10 fetters that we're going to be talking about here in a little bit. And in order to get into the first stage of enlightenment, you'd have to eliminate the first three fetters. So maybe we can talk about that question when we get to that point. All right. That sounds good, Teacher David. And you also mentioned training and skills for careers, um, for wisdom on that subject. Is the path to enlightenment also uh, a form of training as in training of the mind? Can we describe it as that? Yes, it, the path to enlightenment is training the mind. That's what you're doing. You're training the mind in meditation, yes, but you're also training the mind in daily life too. So if somebody only ever did meditation and didn't understand the path to enlightenment that you're 
also training your mind when you're not in meditation. There's various things that you're doing throughout the day in order to actively train the mind. You wouldn't be able to meditate your way to enlightenment, for example. You need meditation, but you also need these other teachings that the Buddha shared, which is called the Eightfold Path, which the Eightfold Path includes meditation, but there's other aspects of your training that you're doing on a daily, consistent basis. And when you're actively training the mind like this throughout meditation, but also throughout your day, eventually the mind comes into its own where these teachings are so soaked into the mind that you don't have to put forth the effort to actually train the mind the way that you did in order to get to enlightenment. So on the way to enlightenment, there's a lot of effort. It's work. It's not easy, but it's not difficult either. It's work. You need to apply dedication, determination, and diligence in order to get to this enlightened mental state through the training of the mind. But once the mind gets to enlightenment, the mind functions effortlessly. There's no longer that struggle or that burden or those difficulties. So while you'll experience a lot of hard work to get to enlightenment, and sometimes people feel so challenged that they feel like they would like to give up, but if you don't give up and you keep pushing through to enlightenment, as you get closer and closer to enlightenment, it actually gets easier and easier in terms of as the mind moves into this enlightened mental state, you're not going to have to be thinking about the teachings the way you had to study, you had to do so much work initially to get on this path and actually start progressing. Once the mind gets to that enlightened mental state, the training has been done. The Buddha uses the words, what's been done has been done, or this holy life has been lived. In other words, you've done all this work to get to enlightenment. And now what I usually say is once the mind is enlightened, this is like the beginning of the rest of your life. So while you need to do a good amount of work in order to get to enlightenment, and there's quite a bit of joy along the way to experience all the different things you experience on this path to enlightenment, there's also a lot of struggles and a lot of challenges. But once you experience and are experiencing this enlightened mental state, I consider that the beginning of the rest of your life because now with this focus, this concentration, this deep memory, this clarity of mind, you can do anything and everything that you ever would like to do in the world. So if you would like to be an airplane pilot and you never thought that you'd be capable of learning how to fly an airplane, as an enlightened being, your mind will be so clear and so crisp that you'd be able to study and understand and remember how to fly an airplane. Because to me, flying an airplane is one of the most complex things that a human could actually do. I'm sure an airplane pilot would say, no, it's actually quite easy. But they actually had to do a lot of work to get to the point where it is easy for them. So once you get to enlightenment, life becomes so easy for you because you're no longer burdened with these discontent feelings like anger and sadness, frustration, and others that now it's the beginning of the rest of your life. You can open a business, you can start a career as a politician, you can fly an airplane, you can do anything and everything that you would like to do. Some people might choose to start sharing these teachings as a teacher once you get to enlightenment. Or some people might choose, like I mentioned, to be a business person or uh, some other pursuits that they have in life, some other things that they are interested in doing. Now the world is your oyster, so to speak, because you can now navigate this world with ease and you're experiencing such peacefulness that there's nothing unwholesome that ever comes back to you because you're only 
producing wise decisions that lead to wholesome outcomes. Makes sense, Teacher David. I have another question. Is everyone or all beings, are they on the path to enlightenment and whether they knowingly or, or are active or not, is that a different story? It really depends how you look at it. Different people might look at it different ways. There's definitely people in the world who are actively on the path. They know that there is a path to enlightenment. They're reading books. They're coming to classes. They're consulting with teachers. They're meditating. They're actively on this path. They're observing progress to the mind. And they know what enlightenment is. And they're heading towards that goal. That's someone who I consider to be on the path to enlightenment. But then there's people who are in the world that have no idea that the path to enlightenment even exists. They have no idea that you can eliminate things like sadness and anger and frustration and others. And these beings are essentially doing what the Buddha described as roaming and wandering through the cycle of rebirth. They're just kind of endlessly roaming through life, being affected by craving, being affected by anger and being affected by ignorance or this unknowing of true reality. For some people, they consider that, yeah, these beings are in some way or another on the path to enlightenment if they're just not aware of it. So like if someone's off the path to enlightenment and their grandmother teaches them not to lie and their grandmother teaches them not to steal, well, these are also teachings of the path to enlightenment that somebody needs to learn and understand in order to experience enlightenment. And you might say, yeah, this person's kind of on the path, but I wouldn't necessarily consider them on the path because they're not actively involved because they don't understand what enlightenment is. They don't even know there is a path to enlightenment. They're not reading books. They're not spending time with teachers and classes. They're not meditating. So the Buddha describes this as a uninstructed worldling, someone who's off the path to enlightenment, uninstructed worldling because they're craving and holding on to the world so tight versus an instructed noble disciple or this practitioner who's actively training on the path to enlightenment versus a non-practitioner. That's typically the way that I will describe them. Thank you, Venerable Sir. Let's go to Miranda. Um, Yes, sir. On YouTube, Tonka asks, teacher, could you please give us a definition of mind? Since it is formless, it may be beneficial to be clear about that. Yeah, the way that I think of the mind, this isn't necessarily a definition that the Buddha gave or that you might see somewhere else, but the way that I think of the mind is I think of it as a non-tangible, non-physical thing. So oftentimes people point to the brain when they're talking about the mind, but the mind and the brain are completely separate. They're not the same thing, but there's a connection between them. So the mind is this non-tangible, non-physical thing. This is where we have awareness. This is where our thoughts, our ideas, the feelings, the perceptions, this is where the choices and decisions are made. This is where all of our thoughts are processed. It's a non-tangible, non-physical thing. Thank you, sir. Um, Then on Facebook, Amina asks, regarding the Eightfold Path, This is something that we need to keep in the front of the mind on a daily basis, correct? Keeping it ingrained into our life? Yes, a person who's actively on the path to enlightenment would need to deeply understand the path to enlightenment, which is the Eightfold Path. That's the core central teaching of the Buddha. 
And someone who's interested in attaining enlightenment would need to know the Eightfold Path backwards, forwards, left, right, and be functioning through that more and more. Essentially, the Eightfold Path is this ceiling that the Buddha says, okay, this is how an enlightened being practices, essentially. This is how you train the mind in order to clarify it and purify it and get rid of this pollution. This is that ceiling. And what you're doing as a practitioner is you're gradually working up closer and closer to that ceiling. And the more that you learn, reflect, and practice, you're getting closer and closer to that ceiling. But of course, there's going to be backward steps where you come back and then you go up and then you go back and you go up and then you go back and go up. But you're getting closer and closer to that ceiling where you deeply understand the Eightfold Path inside and out. When I was getting up and running with the Eightfold Path on something like right speech, for example, and as I started to understand the five factors of well-spoken speech, where you speak at the right time, what you say is true, you speak gently, you speak beneficially, you speak with a mind of loving kindness. There were times where I would just take one of those factors and I would spend a whole week or two or three just perfecting that one factor of the five factors of well-spoken speech, which is just one component of the Eightfold Path. So when you understand the intricacies and the details of the Eightfold Path, there might be times in your practice where you're seeing that you're having difficulties with one particular aspect of the path, and you might just hone in on that and put it under a microscope for a week or two or three or a month or something like that and just really perfect that. Of course, you're still practicing the other steps as well. But in terms of what are you giving the most attention to is you're giving the most attention to the things that are causing the most difficulties in your life. So right now, if there's somebody who's using drugs or alcohol, for example, you might be interested to focus on that and purge all of those things out of the body so that you give the body and the mind the best chances possible to be able to have this healthy environment in which to exist. Once you are really mastering that, maybe you're having trouble with lying and you move on to really ensuring that you never lie about anything and you're always telling the truth. And you might need to really put that under a microscope and focus on that. So each part of the path, there's all these different facets of the path to enlightenment. You would need to understand it backwards, forwards, left, right, up, down. This is why at the beginning of this program, I went through the Eightfold Path in a three-part series. And that's why starting next week and the week after, we're going to be going through the Eightfold Path again already. We're going to be repeating that again so you can absorb that again. And then at other parts of this program, I integrate in various parts of the path so that in one form or another, as I'm teaching and as you're reading these books, this Eightfold Path is being integrated into what you're learning all the way through this seven-month program. Yes, thank you, sir. <clears throat> also on YouTube, IA asks, is it wise to separate the mind from consciousness so the mind has less power to drag you towards the objects of its affection? I think of the mind and consciousness as the same thing. If you would like to think of them differently, this is how I would suggest thinking of them. You can think of the mind as like a container, like a cardboard box. 
and the consciousness is the awareness. So if we think about the mind as this container of this cardboard box, then the contents inside this cardboard box are things like your feelings, your perceptions, your choices, your decisions, your thoughts, your ideas, things like that. That's the contents of the box. And consciousness is awareness of what's in the mind. So if you would like to break it down and look at it differently, you can think of the mind as the container and the consciousness is the awareness of what's inside the container. And the contents inside the container are the things like feelings, perceptions, choices, decisions, thoughts, ideas, and things like this. You're also going to have things like craving anger and ignorance in there. You're going to have mental objects and things like that. So that's the way that I would describe it if you were to hold me to a definition and trying to explain it differently. But I tend to think of these things as all one thing, as the mind and the consciousness as all one thing. But they could be described as two separate things, if you like. The mind is the container. The consciousness is the awareness of what's in the container. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. That was really helpful, Teacher David. And that looks like all the questions we have for now. All right. Well, let's move on to talking about the 10 fetters, because in order to get to enlightenment, you would need to understand the 10 fetters and purify the mind of these 10 fetters. Because craving anger and ignorance is kind of like a high level description of what's plaguing the unenlightened mind. It's the pollution or the taints or the defilements. But the 10 fetters are another level of detail deeper then the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots or the three fires, those craving anger and ignorance. And you would need to understand both of these because at that higher level of craving anger and ignorance, there are certain things you need to understand that the mind is doing with that high level description. And there are certain solutions that you implement at that level of detail. But then at this deeper level of detail of the 10 fetters, you get a deeper picture, a deeper understanding of what's really truly plaguing the mind, what the true pollutions or taints or defilements of the mind are. And you get very unique solutions from the Buddha of how to eliminate these individual fetters or these individual taints. What a fetter is, the way this is described, is it's like a ball in a chain that's around your ankle. So if you think of a shackle around your ankle and this ball and chain, this is what's keeping you trapped in the unenlightened state, much like you would be trapped as a prisoner with this ball and chain around your leg and you're dragging this ball and chain. That's what's happening in the unenlightened mind is these 10 fetters are burdening you and hindering you and keeping you trapped in the unenlightened state where you can't experience this brightness and this brilliance, this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that's permanent. You can't experience this relaxed and calm mind that's attentive and alert all the time because these pollutions are shaking up the mind and it's going up and down at different times in your life. So by understanding each of these individual fetters individually and what the solutions are to eliminate them from the mind, then you can take action in your practice day by day to eliminate them from the mind. But where you start focusing on these truly is when the mind starts moving closer and closer to the jhanas. Initially, 
in your practice, you're learning the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, all those things that I talked about earlier. Those are the core teachings that you need to get up and running on this foundational understanding of the Buddhist teachings. And then as you start to put those pieces of your practice together to include a regular, consistent meditation practice, and you start observing the qualities of mind starting to improve, you start noticing the discontentedness is diminishing. Then when you observe that, you start focusing more closely on these 10 fetters. So here I'll give you a little bit of understanding of these 10 fetters, but in our retreat in America this summer, I'm gonna be going through these in detail one by one, and I'm gonna be explaining exactly what the remedy is for these individual fetters. And what I'm thinking is that after our retreat in America, probably sometime in October or November, the classes that I am teaching in the retreat that aren't typically taught in this group learning program, there's about eight classes that I'm teaching in the retreat that have not been taught anywhere yet. I'm going to bring those classes into the group learning program around October or November so that you can learn those. So if you're not making it to the retreat, that's okay because you're going to be learning those in October, November. But of course, if you can make it to the retreat, you'll be able to learn in person. But here, let me just give you some detail around these so you can start being aware of them. So even though we might not focus on these real closely until you get closer to the jhanas, you can at least have some awareness of what these fetters are so that as you observe them, you can start to work to cut them off and let them go and eliminate them. So I'll just talk about what they are. And then at the retreat this summer, I'll talk about what they are in a lot more detail and actually how to eliminate them. So this personal existence view, what this is, is this is how the mind has this concept of a permanent self. It mistakenly believes, it falsely understands, and it has this misperception that this physical body or this mind is you who you are as a person. So this personal existence view, as long as you mistakenly believe that this physical body or the self-identity in the mind is you, who you are, then your mind's gonna get shaken up. If somebody says, why are you wearing a white shirt? That looks so ugly. It doesn't even go with your skin color. Well, when you hear that from somebody, and if you think of this body or this self-image as being who you are, then when you hear that negative, disagreeable speech, then it's going to shake up your mind and you're going to get angry and frustrated when somebody comments in a negative way about your self-image. But also, if somebody says something pleasing or agreeable about the self-image, you're going to have these conditioned, pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, and elation. And it's only a matter of time before your mind now hears this disagreeable speech, and that's where the painful feelings are coming in. And then the same thing with this self-identity that's in the mind, that if you think, for example, I am a Buddhist teacher, or I am an American, or I live in Thailand, or I am a father, if we have these kind of I am thoughts that are in the mind, now if I hear somebody say something agreeable about Buddhist teachers, all Buddhist teachers are so lovely, they're so generous, they're helping people get to enlightenment. I just absolutely love Buddhist teachers. Well, now the mind gets these conditioned pleasant feelings. But now when you hear somebody talk negative about Buddhist teachers, if you identify with that in terms of my own identity, if I identified with I am a Buddhist teacher, 
Now, when I hear somebody say something negative about Buddhist teachers, now the mind experiences anger or sadness or frustration when you hear that. So this personal existence view is a pollution. So as long as the mind is holding on to this self-image and the self-identity is who you are as a person, then the mind is going to experience these conditioned feelings and it's just going to keep getting shaken up whenever it hears agreeable speech or when it hears disagreeable speech. The second fetter is doubt. Doubt is doubt about the teachings that the Buddha shared in their ability to attain enlightenment. So if you have doubt about the Buddha's teachings, then you're not going to be able to get to the first stage of enlightenment or enlightenment itself because you have doubt about his teachings. Right now, you might actually have doubt, and that's fine. You can have doubt right now. But over time, what you'll observe is the more you learn the teachings, you'll start building this confidence in the Buddha, his teachings, this community that you're part of, your teacher who's sharing these teachings with you, and your own ability to attain enlightenment. Because as you learn the teachings, you investigate his teachings, you then reflect and you practice and you see the discontentedness gradually diminishing in the mind. And this is what erodes the doubt belief or blind faith or blind belief, that's not what eliminates doubt. Like right now, if you have doubt whether the Buddha can lead you to enlightenment or whether I can lead you to enlightenment, that's completely fine. And you can't just say, all right, I don't have doubt anymore. You can't just snap the fingers and experience the elimination of this pollution or this doubt. The way that you eliminate it is through investigating the teachings. And then when you investigate the teachings and you're practicing them and you see the condition of the mind gradually improve, that's how you eliminate the doubt. So initially, if somebody has some doubt, I call this healthy doubt. Because if there's this little bit of skepticism, if there's this doubt of whether the Buddhist teachings are actually true or real, or will they actually lead you to enlightenment, that can ignite this interest to explore the teachings, this interest to be inquisitive and understand the teachings. So if your doubt right now is there and it's arising this intrigue or this inquisitive nature that you're interested in reading books and you're interested in coming to classes and you're interested in talking to a teacher and you're interested in meditating and truly determining for yourself whether these teachings are actually guide you to enlightenment or not, that's a really healthy doubt. But what you're going to observe is you can use that healthy doubt to ignite this enthusiasm to actually learn the teachings. But then as you learn and you see the condition of the mind improving, you'll gain this confidence in the Buddha, his teachings, the community, your teacher, and your own ability to attain enlightenment. And then this doubt of whether you can attain enlightenment or not will be eroded and eliminated from the mind. And the mind will move closer and closer to enlightenment because you will have no doubt that these teachings are indeed leading to an improved condition of mind because you see the truth for yourself, that it's gradually happening over three months and six months and a year. You're observing the improvements to the condition of the mind and the condition of your life. So you will have no doubt that these teachings are indeed leading you to an improved condition of mind. And that's how you actually eliminate the doubt. The third one is wrong behavior and observances. This has a couple of different facets to it. The first one is that if the mind has this pollution or this defilement or this taint 
thinking that its beliefs in terms of rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship that is going to lead to enlightenment, this is a pollution of mind. If you've been taught or if you're currently practicing rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, and you think if you're involved in those ceremonies and those worshiping, that that's what's going to improve the condition of the mind, then your mind has this fetter, this wrong behavior and observances. But if you're at the point where you're like, yeah, I've done those rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, and I see that it's not really leading to any improved condition of mind, then part of this fetter is already eliminated from the mind. Because you can go to a building or you can do these rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship in your house all day long. But if you don't gain wisdom and you're not wise to go out into the world and make better decisions, it doesn't matter how many rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship you do. It's not going to lead to a better condition of mind and a better condition of your life. So you need to get to the point where you understand and deeply understand that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship is not going to lead to an improved condition of mind, and it's not going to lead to an improved condition of your life. Where this comes from is during the lifetime of the Buddha, it was believed that commoners had to go to a special class of people, these Brahmin priests, and pay money. And when you pay money to these Brahmin priests, they would pray on your behalf, and you go home and your life gets better. So if you just pay money to this special class of people, they will do all the work of praying and worshiping and doing ceremonies, and your life is going to get better. And the Buddha was like, no, this isn't how it works, essentially, is what he's saying. But he, of course, said that in a very polite and kind way. So it's the same thing is not only can you not pay other people to worship for you and your life gets better, but you can't do rites, rituals, ceremonies and worship either. And your life is just going to get better from those things. You need to cultivate wisdom in order to antidote that ignorance or that unknowing of true reality. And once you gain the wisdom of how to eliminate craving and anger, that's where your mind moves closer to enlightenment, not through the rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. The other part of this fetter is that in the Eightfold Path, the way that the Buddha taught it, there are steps called right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. As you learn this eightfold path and you start practicing it closer and closer, you eliminate this unwholesomeness that you're currently practicing. You gain wisdom, you gain moral conduct, and you gain mental discipline. And when you start to practice the eightfold path closely, then you will have eliminated wrong behaviors. And the wrong observances are the rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. So you need to clear out certain decisions that you're making. So example, if you're killing or if you're stealing or if you have sexual misconduct or if you're lying or if you're taking substances that cause heedlessness, in order to eliminate this fetter, you would need to clean those things up in others as well. And we're going to be talking about those in more detail because those are kind of rudimentary translations of what the Buddha taught on those topics. He actually taught much more illuminating language and teachings around those topics that will help you to practice them more closely and to understand why to practice them. You're not just practicing them in terms of following rules or commandments or anything like that. Instead, when you clean up your moral conduct, for example, 
then you're causing less and less harm in the world. So harm won't come back to you. Whereas if we're out in the world stealing or causing harm through our sexual activity or causing harm through lying or causing harm through drinking and using drugs and taking substances that cause heedlessness, this is going to cause difficulties for us in the world because we're making unwise decisions. So we're going to be talking about that as we go forward. So in order to eliminate this third fetter, a person would be practicing the Eightfold Path very closely. So getting back to your question, Nick, the way that you'll know that you're in that first stage of enlightenment is that you'll have eliminated these first three fetters of personal existence view, doubt about the teachings and wrong behaviors and observances. Those will be cleared out. And there's other teachings that one would need to learn that's part of volume five in this book series, that that book is dedicated to attaining the first stage of enlightenment. So there's various aspects of establishing right view that's really important that's described in that book. Then there's central desire. Central desire is how the mind has this longing or yearning, this craving through the six sense bases. The mind wants agreeable things through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. We want agreeable forms, agreeable sounds, agreeable odors, agreeable flavors, agreeable physical objects touching the body. And we want these agreeable mental objects in the mind at all times. The mind is craving this permanent, pleasant feelings through these sense bases. So there's actual training that we do to eliminate this. And part of what you're learning in terms of breathing mindfulness meditation is helping you to eliminate this. And then there's ill will, which is this hostility or hatred, this anger, this aggression, resentment, frustration, irritation, annoyance, bitterness, this hostility that comes into the mind. This is where we tend to lash out at people and push people away. And we're oftentimes very aggressive with others. So when we eliminate this from the mind through practicing something like loving kindness meditation, and then we practice loving kindness in daily life, we can eliminate this fetter. But it takes time to work towards eliminating all of these and the other five that I'm going to share with you. But everything that the Buddha is sharing with you and that I'm going to be sharing with you in this class, in this program, in this book, in this entire book series is working towards helping you to eliminate these. But as you get closer to the jhanas and that first stage of enlightenment, you're going to need to hone in on these and deeply understand them. The upper fetters or the higher fetters, these are things like desire for form and desire for formless. This is where you have a desire to be reborn in one of the form realms, which is animal and human because there's physical form or desire for being reborn in one of the formless realms like hell, afflicted spirits, or heavenly realm. The desire for formless, if you have a desire to be reborn in heaven and exist there permanently, you're going to need to let that go because that's not possible. That's not how any of this works, despite what you might have been taught before. Instead, you're going to be constantly reborn in this cycle of rebirth until you purify the mind and eliminate these fetters. As long as you have this desire to exist in either the animal or human realms or in hell, afflicted spirits or heavenly realm, you will continue to exist. 
not necessarily in those realms, but you will continue to exist as long as you have this desires. So you need to eliminate the desire for existence. It doesn't mean that you're not going to exist once you attain enlightenment, but you need to eliminate the desire for existence. Whether we exist after enlightenment or not, the Buddha left it as an undeclared teaching. If you don't get to enlightenment in this lifetime, you will be reborn in the cycle of rebirth. But if you get to enlightenment in this lifetime or at death, what happens next? The Buddha left as an undeclared teaching. So you need to get to the point where you don't care what's next, that your mind is so peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in this existence, you don't even care what's next. You're not afraid of death and you don't even care what may or may not come next, if anything at all. Then there's conceit. This is arrogance or pride, judging others, measuring and comparing of who's superior and who's inferior. This is essentially part of the ego. So wherever you observe that the mind is being arrogant or boastful or prideful, or you're noticing that you're judging other people, or you're measuring and comparing others, putting yourself above or below other people, even though you may not be actively working on the ego right now at this moment, wherever you see these aspects of the mind arise, cut them off and let them go. Don't allow the mind to be arrogant and boastful. Train the mind to just be an equal person with all beings. Whether it's the president of your country or whether it's somebody who has a job that people consider to be less prestigious, then you can practice in such a way that you treat all beings equally and you see yourself as an equal to everyone else. This whole idea of measuring and comparing people to feel superior or inferior to others, if you put yourself above others and you look down on people with arrogance and pride, you're not going to be able to exist peacefully and harmoniously with all beings because you have this arrogance and pride and you're looking down on other people, judging them. But also if you're putting yourself below people and feeling that you're diminished and you're degrading yourself, this is dangerous for the mind as well. So you shouldn't be putting yourself below people to feel inferior. Instead, everyone is equal. And this is what's going to promote you creating a life practice where you treat all beings equally. Because if you go into a situation where you're constantly trying to measure and compare of whether you're above people or you're below people, this is going to make it very difficult for your mind because you're going to constantly be judging and your mind's going to be burdened with trying to figure out if you're above people or you're below people. And if you're above people, you're going to talk down to those people and you're going to treat those people one way. And if you feel like you're below people, you're going to have uncalmness and unsteadiness and you're going to talk up to those people in a different way. But if you look at all people as equally, you can treat all beings equal and you can just have one permanent practice that you're always polite, kind, friendly and respectful to everybody. Where this comes from is our animal existences and our animal lives. It actually helped us to have a certain alpha female in our wolf pack and an alpha male in our wolf pack because they looked out for our survival. They taught us how to hunt. They taught us where the water was. They taught us all kinds of things as a wolf pack. So we needed an alpha female and an alpha male. Or in our herd of elephants, we needed the matriarch to show us where the food and water was. And that was good for our survival. But in this human realm, we don't need that. 
we just need everybody to treat each other equally and being harmonious and peaceful with each other. So as long as your mind has conceit, you have this pride or this boastfulness, this arrogance where you're judging, measuring and comparing people, then you're not going to be able to relate to all people in a harmonious way. So wherever you see that arising, you need to let that go. Then there's this restlessness where the mind is confused or distracted or worried, has this anxiety or anxiousness. There's this restless state of mind where the mind can't focus on just one thing at a time. So you need to train the mind to have singleness of mind where it can just focus on one thing at a time. And these classes are excellent for that. Whether you're attending live, whether you're listening to a replay or the podcast, if you can sit with this material and you can learn for an hour and a half or two hours and you can stay focused on this material, then that's training your mind in each class or each time you pick up the book and you're able to focus and read the book. This is honing your mind and exercising the mind. Just like a muscle, if you didn't exercise that muscle, it would get very weak over time and it wouldn't be able to support the activity and the work that you're involved in. The mind is the same way. If you don't exercise the mind and do things to hone it and to eliminate restlessness and to cultivate consciousness in terms of having more focus and more concentration, then you wouldn't be able to eliminate this restlessness. So wherever you see the mind trying to do two, three, four things at a time, or it's rapidly cycling from thing to thing to thing to thing, you should cut that off and let it go and just focus on one thing at a time. Develop this singleness of mind. Whereas if you're eating, you're just eating. Or if you're watching TV, you're just watching TV. If you're on the phone, you're just on the phone. But if you're eating, watching TV, and on the phone, your mind's rapidly cycling from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing, and it's going to be restless. At other times, when you're sitting by yourself in a waiting room or you're somewhere else, your mind's going to get bored. It's going to get lonely because you've trained it to rapidly cycle from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. But if you train your mind to have singleness of mind in all situations, where you're just eating, you're eating. When you're watching TV, you're just watching TV. When you're reading a book, you're just reading a book. When you're on the phone, you're just on the phone. When you're in a business meeting, you're just in the business meeting. You're not thinking about what you're gonna do after the business meeting. When you can train the mind this way, and not just in meditation to focus on the breath, but outside of meditation, you're training the mind to only focus on one thing at a time, then your training is all encompassing. So now you're not complacent where you're just meditating and then all day long, you let your mind run around the forest being untrained. Yes, you train in meditation, but during the day, you're training the mind to have this singleness of mind at all times. And these classes are a great way for you to do that because there's this extended period of time where you need to focus. So this is actually part of your training, not just learning in these classes, but actually training the mind to be focused for this extended period of time. Then the last one is called ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. This is also called delusion or confusion or misunderstanding. This is essentially that the mind doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. On this path to enlightenment, prior to getting on this path, beings don't understand why we get angry. We usually blame other people. 
We don't understand why we get frustrated or why we feel guilt or why we have jealousy. We usually blame other people. When we get resentful or we get bored or lonely, we blame other people for these things. But when you gain the wisdom of the Buddhist teachings and you can clearly see why the mind experiences what it experiences, now you're gaining wisdom and you're starting to antidote or remedy or solve this problem of ignorance in the mind. You're eradicating this pollution of ignorance in the mind through gaining wisdom. And you gain wisdom through investigating the teachings by attending classes, by reading books, by talking to teachers, by doing these type of things, coming to retreats, talking to each other among the community, having discussions about the teachings. You are now involved in discussing the teachings so that now as you are bringing these teachings on board more and more, you're not believing them. You're learning, you're reflecting, independently verifying those teachings, and now you're practicing them, and you're starting to observe the condition of the mind gradually improve. And as you eliminate these higher fetters, this is where the mind now moves into enlightenment because you've eliminated all 10 fetters. And this ignorance, it's not just intellectual learning. You know, when you think about ignorance, this is kind of like a derogatory word nowadays, but the Buddha didn't use this as a derogatory word. That's why I translate it as the unknowing of true reality, is that it's not just intellectual learning because there's plenty of people that might intellectually understand the teachings to a certain degree, but to fully eradicate the ignorance, there needs to be a certain amount of intellectual learning, but then you need to move these teachings into practice. And then when you're practicing the teachings and you're eliminating the unwholesome decisions that you're making, you're eliminating these pollutions of mind and you're starting to make wiser and wiser decisions in your life, through what you've acquired as wisdom, that's where the ignorance truly gets eliminated, not through the intellectual learning. But you have to have a certain amount of intellectual learning in order for you to do the reflection, in order for you to now integrate these teachings into your practice. And as you're practicing, that's where you improve the condition of the mind. That's where you eradicate the pollution that's plaguing the mind. These 10 fetters, they basically are organized in such a way that you move through these four stages of enlightenment as you eradicate more and more of these fetters. So as you experience the four preliminary phases that we call the jhanas, the mind will get to this first stage of enlightenment called stream enterer. And then there's a second stage called once returner, a third stage which is called non-returner. And then the fourth stage we call arahant. This is where the mind is actually enlightened. In order to get to that first stage of enlightenment, you would need to eliminate the first three fetters, personal existence view, doubt, and wrong behavior and observances. But again, you need to do all the foundational learning and build up your practice in order to get to that point. Then, in order to get to the second stage, which is once returner, you've already eliminated the first three fetters. So in order to get to once returner, you have thinned fetter four and five, which is central desire and ill will. So you've kind of thinned those. They're not eliminated yet, but they're kind of thinned out. There's not as much central desire there. There's not as much ill will, but it's still there, right? So you've eliminated the first three and you've thinned out central desire and ill will. To get to the third stage of enlightenment, which is non-returner, 
you would have eliminated all the lower fetters, all five. So personal existence view, doubt about the teachings, wrong behavior and observances, central desire and ill will will all be completely eliminated from a non-returner. In each of these three stages that we're talking about so far, discontentedness will be gradually diminished more and more and more. For example, a non-returner is barely experiencing any real discontentedness. They might experience it every so often. But a stream enterer, that person has also diminished discontentedness. They don't have as much anger, as much sadness, as much frustration as they did when they were off the path. You can observe the quality of mind having been improved by moving through these stages of enlightenment. And by the time you eliminate all 10 fetters, the lower fetters and the higher fetters, now the mind is actually enlightened. It's been completely purified. There's no more pollution in the mind. This being is now an arahant, no longer experiencing any discontentedness whatsoever. All discontentedness is completely eliminated. This being is enlightened, experiencing peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy permanently for the rest of this life and there will no longer be any more rebirth in the cycle of rebirth. In addition to these four stages of enlightenment, there is this unique being called a Buddha. A Buddha is very rare to arise in the world. The last one that the world is currently aware of existed over 2,500 years ago. A Buddha is an arahant. They've eliminated all 10 fetters from the mind. They are an enlightened being, but we actually refer to them as a perfectly enlightened one. They're fully perfectly enlightened. And the reason why we call them that is because they meet three unique criteria and others. But let me go through some of these criteria to help you understand what a Buddha is. A Buddha isn't a stage of enlightenment. It's a unique individual who is in the fourth stage of enlightenment. They're an arahant. They've eliminated all 10 fetters but they did so without the help of any teachers or any guides. They've attained enlightenment through their own efforts without the guidance of any teachers. That's the first criteria of what makes a Buddha a Buddha. They don't have any teachers. They independently figured out how to attain enlightenment on their own. And through that independent journey, they've cultivated deep wisdom about the path to enlightenment. And then once they awake to enlightenment, they declare and share the teachings that led to their own enlightenment, guiding countless beings to enlightenment during their lifetime. So for the rest of their life, they will dedicate that time to sharing the teachings that they discovered in their own independent journey with other beings to help those other beings get to enlightenment. And by the time that person dies, there will be countless people that have got to enlightenment during that person's lifetime. And then the third criteria is that that Buddha, that person who ultimately is a Buddha, they will leave their teachings in such a condition that countless other beings will attain enlightenment after their death. So to summarize that, a Buddha attains enlightenment on their own, through their own independent journey, without the guidance of any teachers. They then dedicate the rest of their life to sharing those teachings with other beings so that countless beings attain enlightenment during their lifetime. And then they leave the teachings in such a condition that countless more beings after their death can continue to experience enlightenment. That's what Gautama Buddha did. And a Buddha has such deep, profound wisdom because of their independent journey. They're 
mind is not tainted or affected by other people's opinions or views. That's why we call them fully, perfectly enlightened. A Buddha, a person who's going to become a Buddha, they are learning and practicing through their own wisdom. And they have this profound memory to be able to recall countless details of their current life and their past lives. And this wisdom has accumulated into this last life where now they can use that wisdom in order to make their way to enlightenment without the help of any teachers or any guides. This is why their mind is perfectly enlightened because it's not tainted or affected by any outside opinions or views. And what a Buddha is going to do is as they're working on improving the condition of the mind, if there's something that doesn't work, they're going to discard it. So by the time that they get to enlightenment, the only thing that they know is what led to their own enlightenment. Wherein a person who gets to enlightenment, who studied with teachers and guides, they might hold on to certain teachings just because out of respect or gratitude for the people that have actually are guiding them. But maybe only 70, 80, 90% of what they truly understand is what led to their enlightenment. But there's this kind of 10, 20, 30% of extra baggage that isn't really truly the true path. They might be enlightened, but they haven't really gotten this pure wisdom that a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha would have. So that's why we call a Buddha a fully perfectly enlightened one, because their mind isn't holding on to this excess baggage. And this profound memory that they have to be able to recall countless details of their life of this existence and prior existence is what allowed them to accumulate enough wisdom to be able to attain enlightenment on their own without any teachers or guides. So for example, your mind is kind of like a hard drive. The hard drive has 500 megabytes of space or one gigabyte or one terabyte of space. And when you get to that full capacity of the hard drive, you have to delete certain files in order to store new files on that hard drive. That's what an average individual experiences. And that's why you can remember certain things about your childhood, but it's just kind of splotchy. It's just kind of here and there. You have some vague memories of your childhood because you've been overwriting your memories as you've experienced new things. You've had to overwrite and your mind only has a certain amount of capacity. So that's why you only have a few kind of splotchy memories about certain things that happened in your childhood. Where a Buddha, a person who's going to become a Buddha, they would have a deep, profound memory of countless details of things that happened to them in this exact life and in prior lives as well. They will know countless details about what happened to them in this life and prior lives. And that accumulation of wisdom is what allows them to be able to now attain enlightenment on their own. A person who's a Buddha can quickly determine the condition of another person's mind by spending time with that person. But they don't do it in a judgmental way of looking down on people. They only do that in order to help those people to attain enlightenment. So if students come to learn with a Buddha, a Buddha is understanding the mind of their students and understanding the unwholesome aspects of their mind, but also understanding the wholesome qualities of their student's mind. And then as that student is 
asking questions and seeking guidance, a Buddha with their deep, profound wisdom, this fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha, can now help this person in ways that other people aren't necessarily able to help because of their deep, profound wisdom and their ability to understand the condition of another person's mind through just spending time with them. They're able to offer them teachings that will able to really help them progress more readily than just an average enlightened teacher because an average enlightened teacher will be able to help people get to enlightenment but a buddha will have such profound wisdom and be able to understand the condition of the mind of other people so well that they can offer teachings and their students will be able to make significant progress in a very short period of time in studying with a person who's an actual buddha and then lastly in terms of what a Buddha is, just to kind of give you guys an understanding, is that a Buddha is a deep practitioner of their own teachings. They lead by example. They're a living, breathing, walking example of their teachings. So if they teach right speech, they're going to practice right speech. Essentially, they practice what they preach because their teachings that led to their own enlightenment, they're going to be practicing those on a consistent, ongoing basis. You're not going to see a Buddha teach right speech and practice wrong speech. That's not what a Buddha is going to do because a Buddha understands that they can teach through their words and their discourses and sharing teachings with people, but they teach a lot more and a lot more directly through their own actions. So by being a living, breathing, walking example of their teachings, their students are not only learning in their discourses and in their classes and the way that they're describing the teachings, but their students are also learning through observing the Buddha's conduct and the way that they interact in the world. And you can even do this even with a enlightened being. An enlightened being should also be a living, breathing, walking example of these teachings. So any enlightened being that you're around, you should be able to observe certain qualities of their mind and certain qualities of their practice that when you're in their presence, either in classes or just walking down the street, going to have a lunch or dinner, you should be able to observe their practice and be able to learn through observing how they interact in the world with other beings. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have on all of these things that I just shared with you about the 10 fetters, the four stages of enlightenment, and what a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha is. You can ask those by putting them into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Thank you, teacher David. Going back to the question I had earlier, and since what I read that you wrote in chapter three, that the ego can uh, convince the mind that it's more enlightened than it is. How would a practitioner know if they surpassed the jhanas and entered the beginning stages of enlightenment since there's no certificates or belts issued or anything like that? What I suggest that you do is just stay focused on learning and practicing the individual teachings and particularly the 10 fetters, because I know that you've been studying now for a while, Nick, is rather than trying to determine whether you are in the first stage of enlightenment or not, because that's the ego that wants to figure that out. That's the conceit. Instead, just focus on understanding what the 10 fetters are. And any time that you observe that one of those fetters are arising, cut it off and let it go, eliminate it. 
rather than trying to kind of chart your course and observe, am I in the first stage? Am I in the second stage? That's just the ego wanting to kind of give a pat on the back or puff out the chest. Instead, understand what something like central desire is, understand what something like ill will is, and whenever you see that arise, then let it go. And as I've mentioned before in classes, that you'll know that the mind is enlightened when you experience one year, two year, three years of no discontentedness whatsoever. That's when you'll know that the mind is pretty much enlightened. But it's not wise to convince yourself that you are enlightened because that's where the ego and the conceit, the arrogance, the complacency comes in. And if those things come in, then the mind's surely not enlightened. So instead of trying to kind of determine what stage you're in, kind of like maybe martial arts where, you know, there's a test and you determine if you're a blue belt or a purple belt or whatever it is. Instead, just know what all these fetters are and all the other teachings too, of course. And then wherever you see that your practice is falling short of that, just actively work to improve your practice. That's what I would suggest for you. Because the mind can get obsessive about trying to figure out what stage of enlightenment you're in. And this is the mind craving to know what stage you're in. And you've got to eliminate that craving to know what stage you're in and just focus on doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And if you understand the fetters really closely, you understand the full path really closely, wherever you see you're falling short of that, just improve your practice and actively work to make it better. You see, that's why it's good to have a teacher to ask questions to. Um, you know, that way the mind doesn't get carried away with these things and you can ask these things and then just let it go. Exactly. The mind can be really obsessed about what individual stage of enlightenment you're in. And the reason why I know that is because that's what I experienced too. Everything that I teach is through my own experience. And I remember months and months and months of just trying to figure out, you know, what stage of enlightenment I'm in and just constantly being obsessed about that. And realizing how discontent the mind was being obsessed about what stage of enlightenment I might have been in. And when I finally got to the point where I was like, you know what, I'm tired of obsessing over this. The mind is just burdened and it's kind of, you know, worn out of just constantly trying to figure this out. Instead, the better approach is never convince the mind that it's enlightened. Just understand all of the 10 fetters and the Eightfold Path. And wherever you see you're falling short of that or that you're observing one of those fetters arising or you're observing something that's not part of the path to enlightenment work to eliminate that and then arise the antidote or the wholesome quality or the solution to that pollution that you're observing teacher david do these fetters need to be um, eliminated in order like for example um the fourth and fifth fetter like to get to the second stage of enlightenment um, those have to be greatly thinned. So a question arises, can someone thin those, you know, for the second stage of enlightenment, can someone thin those numbers four and five, um, sensual desire and ill will before they've even made it to the first stage of enlightenment as a stream editor? Yes, they absolutely can. And additionally, someone could be in that second stage of enlightenment and having eliminated the first three fetters, having thinned the fourth and fifth, and they could be working on eliminating conceit, for example, even though they haven't yet eliminated 
sensual desire and ill will, they're already working on eliminating conceit and working on eliminating restlessness of mind. So even though there is this kind of progression that we see in the four stages of enlightenment, it doesn't mean that the fetters are actually going to be eliminated in that order. Someone can actually eliminate conceit before they eliminate ill will, for example, or something like that, perhaps. I'm just off the cuff, just kind of giving an example there. So what you should do is just as you get closer and closer and you're observing that the jhanas are starting to be experienced, that's where the light's kind of coming on and you're starting to see the qualities of mind improving, then just really understand all 10 fetters as deeply as you can. And then wherever you see them arising, just cut them off and let them go. So you're not necessarily eliminating them in order. Although it would be great once someone's in the jhanas to really focus on those first three of personal existence, view, doubt, and wrong observances and behaviors, because that's what will get you into the first stage of enlightenment. And from there, the mind won't regress. But once you're there in that first stage of enlightenment, you'll observe that you'll be able to work on all these fetters at all the time. And even when you're right now, somebody who's just joined this path, maybe in the last month or the last week or the last uh, two months or what have you, even though that fetter of conceit, of arrogance and pride is up in the upper fetters, the higher fetters is part of otter hunt and the fourth stage of enlightenment. Even if you have just only been part of this path for a week or two, wherever you see arrogance arising, you can work to eliminate that and cut that off and tell the mind, no, I'm not going to allow you to be arrogant today. You need to be humble. So we don't necessarily have to work in them exactly in the order that they're in, that in reality, you kind of learn all these teachings and you're practicing them all simultaneously. Thank you, Teacher David. That's helpful. Mm -hmm. I have a question on the third fetter. Now, the way I understand it's two parts, wrong grasp or wrong behavior and wrong grasp of behavior and observances. So the question's on the observances. Um, Is that just describing the path to enlightenment, Buddhism, or or is it also pertaining to um, all religions? Like, for example, Christianity, the Holy Spirit, yeah, it's, it's any kind of right ritual ceremony or worship. It's not going to lead to an improved condition of mind by itself. So, for example, I used to be Catholic and I would practice Holy Communion. You know, walking up to a priest and getting a wafer on your tongue and drinking some juice or some wine or what have you, that by itself isn't going to improve the condition of the mind because it's not giving you any wisdom. It's just a right ritual ceremony or worship. Um, and there's other things in other traditions too. And we're not denigrating those traditions. They obviously do those things for a reason and they have their own reasons for doing that. But what the Buddha is sharing is that those things by themselves are not going to produce an improved state of mind. Like you can't get rid of anger by eating a wafer and by taking a sip of wine once a week. You can't get rid of frustration and guilt and shame by going to confess your sins to somebody, for example. This is a rite, a ritual, a ceremony, for example. There's different things even in the Buddhist tradition where people will feed statues or they will give little water, they will light incense and candles, they will do prayers. None of this stuff, even though you'll see people calling it Buddhism, is actually part of what the Buddha originally taught. He taught that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship don't lead to this improved 
condition of mind because when you understand dependent origination, uh, which is the ultimate truth of the Buddhist teachings, the highest truth, then you understand the major hindrance that's keeping the mind in the unenlightened state is ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. And the only thing that can fix that is wisdom. And the only way you get to wisdom is you learn, reflect, and practice independently verifying the teachings. Rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship is not going to produce wisdom. It's actually taking you in the other direction, away from wisdom. The mind is deluded, thinking that if you you know, pray the rosary, for example, that somehow this is going to make things better in your life. But that's not what's going to give you wisdom to make wiser decisions. When you understand the difficulties in your life, the struggles in your life are based on the decisions that you're making, when you're putting out harm, harm's coming back to you. Then you understand to eliminate those struggles and difficulties, you have to have wisdom and make wiser choices. And when you make wiser choices and you put that out into the world, then wholesome results are going to come back to you. Just worshiping something or just having rites, rituals, and ceremonies, that's not building wisdom to now make wiser decisions in the world to now create wholesome outcomes. This is why people go to a building, they will worship and they will pray and they will do ceremonies and all these different things. And then they will go out in the parking lot and argue, honk their horn at each other and be really angry and resentful and vindictive to each other because that worshiping in the building didn't change anything. The pollution in the mind of craving anger and ignorance is still there. The worship didn't actually solve anything at all. You might've felt good in that moment when you were doing the worship, but it didn't bring on any new wisdom that now when you go out in the parking lot, you can be courteous and you can be polite and you can be generous. And that's how we actually improve the results that we experience in our own life and in the world as a whole. Okay. Thank you, teacher David. I like to go a little bit deeper on that. Say, for example, if, if I'm a practitioner and I participate in those things, um, can I still participate in those things and just know that that's not going to lead to an improved condition of mind, a higher consciousness or enlightenment? For example, if I'm a monk and our tradition uh, is doing those things, you know, um, can I continue to do those things as a sign of respect or a sign of, or as in for tradition, you know, purposes such as this and just know that you know, I have to train my mind for enlightenment. Or, for example, if I'm a Catholic, you know, if I go to Palm Sunday, you know, can I just do that as a out of respect or tradition or for myself? Um, I know before I meditate, I say the Our Father from a Catholic tradition as an, and as a sign of respect. So with these three examples, um, can you elaborate on that, sir? Sure. So what each individual person does is completely up to them and how they choose to practice. But I can speak from my own experience that what the Buddha is explaining here in terms of this fetter of wrong behavior and observances is that it's the thinking, it's the understanding, it's the mind thinking that this ceremony or this worship is going to improve the condition of the mind. It's not the actual action of doing it. So if I went to a place and I did Holy Communion, for example, that's not 
an indication that the mind has the fetter of wrong observances and wrong behaviors. It's just an action that's being done. But the mind can deeply understand the truth that eating this wafer and drinking this sip of wine isn't going to improve the condition of the mind and perhaps still choose to do it for the reasons that you described. In my life, in the way that I choose to practice, I wouldn't choose to do any rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship because what I'm interested in doing is I'm interested in practicing the teachings so that people can observe how somebody would practice. So for me, I know that rites, rituals, and ceremonies don't actually lead to enlightenment. And I can go into environments where people are doing rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, and I can observe that and I understand what they're doing, but I don't choose to participate in it because I'm not interested in setting an example that this type of thing would actually improve the condition of the mind. In the past, I've done those things and they don't lead to an improved condition of mind. That's how I know that they don't work. And you can experience that for yourself too. But whether each individual person chooses to practice in that same way is up to them. But in order to get to enlightenment, if a person is going to participate in some kind of right ritual ceremony or worship, they would have to have the understanding deeply in the mind that this isn't something that is going to lead to an improved condition of mind. The way that I look at rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship is that is delusion. That is confusion. That is misunderstanding. And in order to help people get out of that delusion, get out of that misunderstanding, I need to stand on stable ground. So if I go into delusion, I can't help people out of delusion. So it's just like if you had a friend that fell into quicksand, you would stay on stable ground and you would reach your hand out and help them get out of the quicksand. You wouldn't get down into the quicksand with them in order to help them get out of the quicksand. So in environments and in situations where people are performing rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, I choose to not do it. And sometimes people will even come over to me and ask me why I don't do it. And then it opens up a conversation to help them understand. Whereas if I just went ahead and participated along with everyone else, just out of respect, so to speak, then that is going to put me into delusion and into this misunderstanding. And now it's very challenging to help people get out of that because when I start teaching that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship don't lead to enlightenment, the first thing someone's going to ask me is like, well, why do you do rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship then if that's what you're teaching? So I need to be an example of what the teachings actually are. And this will actually help people to experience enlightenment if we clean up our practice and we choose not to do those things, then I would say that we're setting a better example. And this whole idea of doing a ceremony or doing worship just out of respect for others, what this really is, is that others have craving for us to do what they're doing. And if we're not doing what they do, their mind becomes discontent. But see, that's not actually respectful in my view. If I just do what others do just so that they don't get discontent, that's actually feeding their craving. So I would rather just sit there and not do the right ritual ceremony worship if they get discontent because of it and they come and ask me, you know, why aren't you practicing this? Everyone else here is doing this ceremony, doing this worship, then it opens up a dialogue that I'm now able to help them understand. Whereas if I just jumped in the quicksand with them, 
then all of us sink in the quicksand. So that's what I choose for my practice, but not everybody has to choose to practice that way, but that's what I choose to do and that's what I kind of advise people to do rather than just kind of give in to other people's craving thinking that that's respect when in reality what it truly is is just feeding other people's craving so that they don't get discontent when you can't cause them to be discontent they're causing it themselves would you say the best way to respect the buddha is to practice his teachings then that's what the buddha said and that's what i would say too is that the best way to respect any teacher including the buddha is to practice their teachings because the Buddha talked about this during his lifetime. He, he shared that if anybody is interested in respecting him, that the best thing you could do is learn and practice his teachings. He didn't demand people to respect him. He didn't force or pressure people to respect him. But when people asked him about this question, he said the best way to respect him is to learn and practice his teachings. And that's ultimately how you and the people around you are going to actually be able to improve the condition of the mind. Whereas if we just kind of conform to what other people are doing around us, we're just staying in the murky water. We're just staying in the polluted water. We have to be that lotus flower, not in an arrogant way, not in a prideful way, but we need to be that lotus flower that rises above the murky water and blooms above the murky water. As long as we stay down in the murky water with others, we're not really truly helping them in the best way that we can. One of the best ways to help people to get out of delusion is for them to see and observe somebody who's not in delusion. And then through your example and the way that you conduct yourself in daily life, this will help provide an example for people. And then when they choose to ask questions or they choose to be understanding and maybe seek your input of why you're not doing those rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, that's what ultimately is going to help them. So that person in the quicksand, if they're like, jump in the quicksand, jump in the quicksand, come on, get in the quicksand, help me get out. Are we going to get in the quicksand just out of respect for that person? Or are we going to say, no, ma'am, or no, sir, I'm going to stand here on stable ground. I'm going to give you my hand. You grab onto my hand and I'll help pull you out. You know, that's what I think that a loving, kind, compassionate being would do is even though the being in the quicksand is pleading and begging with you to get in the quicksand with them, you're not going to do that because you know the truth and you have wisdom that it's important to stay on solid ground and reach out a hand or reach out a stick so that they can grab onto that. So that's what would be the best thing in my view is stay on stable ground. And yes, it is respectful to a teacher to practice their teachings, but you're not required to do that. That's a personal choice for yourself. Teacher David, um, why would someone that's just starting out want to eliminate the fetter of sensual desire? You know, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. Um, why would they want to eliminate those things if those things make them feel good? Um, is it because it's just impossible to always have those agreeable things? It's impossible to always have those agreeable things. And by allowing the mind to crave for pleasant feelings, then you're accepting and welcoming and inviting in the painful feelings too. So you can't hold on to the temporary pleasant feelings and get to the permanent joy. You have to be willing to let go of the temporary 
pleasant feelings in order to get rid of the painful feelings so that you can get to the permanent joy. And one final question on the fetters, Venerable Sir. Is paranoia and fear, would that be considered uh, restlessness? And could you elaborate on that? I think of fear as discontentedness because it's coming from craving, desire, attachment. Paranoia. So let's see, paranoia. You can think of that as kind of like a restless mind a bit, but there's craving in there that's causing it for sure. And we could consider that discontentedness, even restlessness of mind, we can consider discontentedness. So all of that's discontentedness. Thank you, Teacher David. Let's go to Miranda. Thank you, Nicholas. Um, On Facebook, Amina asks, is it possible that as one progresses towards enlightenment, that the challenges faced increase and seem to be more intense, realizing more of the work and improvement in the life practice that still remains undone? I think of this practice, you know, going up and down, up and down kind of all the time. There's parts that will be really easy and straightforward for you, and there's parts that will be really difficult for you. Sometimes I think of it like an onion and peeling an onion, like those outer layers of the onion come off really easy. And then when you get deeper into the core, sometimes the core of the onion is really hard to peel back. So there can be more challenges as you get closer to enlightenment, but you've got more wisdom on board and you've got the text, you've got a teacher, you've got all things moving on all cylinders that even though the challenges might be bigger, you have more ability to solve them. Where early in practice, you just start meditating and doing you know, breathing mindfulness and loving kindness meditation. Wow, you start noticing all these improvements, but you don't quite have a relationship built with your teacher. You haven't quite dug into the text as much. You haven't done as many classes and things like this. You haven't accumulated as much benefit, but there's some kind of marginal improvements that you notice early in practice. But then when things do get more challenging, you should have more texts. You should have more wisdom. You should have a better relationship with your teacher. So even though it's higher challenging uh, in terms of challenges, you have more wisdom to be able to face those challenges. So there's pros and cons with all of that. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Teacher David, it looks like that's all we have for today. All right. Well, I would like to thank you all for joining for today's class. As you see this discussion around enlightenment and what is enlightenment, we could probably go on for multiple more hours and continue to talk about it. But what's important is that you understand that an enlightened being has this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. They no longer experience any discontentedness. And also remember that it's the elimination of this pollution through training the mind, that you're eliminating craving, anger, and ignorance, or the unknowing of true reality. And that's what's going to bring the mind into the enlightened mental state. Also keep in mind that it's the acquiring of wisdom that's going to do that, not belief. And that an enlightened being is going to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful as part of their practice. So if you can remember these things, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, the mind is going to be trained to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance, or the unknowing of true reality. And that is accomplished through acquiring wisdom, not through belief. 
and an enlightened being is polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. If you can remember those basic things, now what we're going to do next week on Sunday is I'm going to introduce you to the three universal truths and the four noble truths. And we call them the truths because you can independently verify these. It's not something that you need to believe because remember, it's wisdom that's going to help you to get to this enlightened mental state, not belief. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be in our third class of a four-part series where we're doing loving-kindness meditation. So you're welcome to come on Wednesday. We do a group meditation together. I'll help you to understand how to do breathing mindfulness meditation as well as loving-kindness meditation and guide you in your meditation practice so that you can then be meditating on your own as part of your own independent practice. And then on Wednesday, we have open questions. We usually have lots of time for any questions or thoughts or things that came up in your mind between today and then or anything that you're understanding is part of this path to enlightenment. As you're progressing here, it's really important to get this book. You can download it for free by going to buddhadailywisdom.com and there's a button for free books. You can download it for free. You can take it and go print it if you like or you can order a printed copy through Amazon because in these classes, there are certain things that I teach that are extracted from the book. But I can't teach everything that's in the book because the book has a lot more details than what I share in the classes. But then sometimes in the classes, I share things that actually aren't in the book. So with these two things combined of reading the book and attending the classes and then putting the teachings into practice in your daily life, that's what's going to move the mind closer and closer to enlightenment so that you can experience this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. One of the biggest misunderstandings or the biggest myths about enlightenment is that people believe that the Buddha sat under a tree, he meditated, and he instantly got to enlightenment. But this isn't what he says in his teachings. When you read the words of the Buddha, he talks about this gradual training, this gradual practice and this gradual progress that his mind gradually moved to enlightenment because he got to enlightenment over a six-year period. So the same thing is going to need to happen for your practice. You're going to have to gradually learn to get to enlightenment. And when you gradually learn and you gradually implement these teachings into your life, you'll see that that gradual training and gradual practice leads to this gradual progress. So don't believe that myth that the Buddha instantly got to enlightenment after sitting down under a tree. He actually attained enlightenment over a six-year period, and then he sat under this tree for about seven weeks contemplating whether or not he should share his teachings or not, because his teachings were so different than anybody else that was teaching at the time that he wasn't quite sure if the world was ready for his teachings or not. And when he was asked towards the end of his life, you know, what can we do in order to kind of pay respect to you in addition to learning your teachings and things like that? And where can we kind of visit in order to kind of remember you? He gave four places that we could visit in order to remember him. The place where he was born, the place where he attained enlightenment, the place where he gave his first discourse, and the place where he died. Well, he attained enlightenment over a six-year period of time, so there wasn't really one place that he attained enlightenment. But he told people that they could 
consider this tree that he contemplated under for seven weeks to be the location to kind of remember his enlightenment. So that's where this myth and this belief comes from, is that when he shared with people that they can kind of consider this tree to be the representative location of where he attained enlightenment, they could visit that tree after his death. But in reality, he talks about this gradual training. So this path to enlightenment, it's going to be a gradual progress for you. And there's going to be challenges and there's going to be struggles. But the Buddha shares not to shrink back from that struggle. What I suggest that you do and encourage you to do is that when you're struggling, is that you turn around and you face that struggle and you walk towards it. Walking towards that struggle is coming to classes, meditating, reaching out to your teacher, asking for help, reading the books that I share as part of this book series, coming to retreats, talking to each other as community members. That's walking towards the struggle. Whereas if you run away from the struggle, you're not going to gain the wisdom you need. When the mind is struggling the most, that's where it's acquiring the most wisdom. So you should welcome these struggles. You should embrace these struggles. When you're having difficulties in life and you're now on this path to enlightenment, that's the time to reach out for help and support because in those struggles and difficulties, the mind doesn't understand something. It's lacking some wisdom. And when you reach out for help from your teacher or from these books or from your other members in the community, that's where the mind then gains wisdom so that you no longer experience that struggle again. Whereas if you experience a struggle and you run away from it, you're gonna experience that struggle again because you're not willing to walk through the struggle. So turn around and walk towards the struggle by gaining the wisdom that you need in order to face the struggle and walk through it. So that's what we're gonna be doing through the rest of this program is I'm gonna be helping you to understand the wisdom of this path to enlightenment. So thank you very much for attending today's class. I'll see you either next Sunday, perhaps on Wednesday, maybe even both of those days. Have a very lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.